Welcome to the Alabaster Jar, a weekly conversation where we take on current issues impacting women at the intersection of faith, theology, and ministry. We are pleased to offer Alabaster Jar as a podcast of Northern Seminary. On today's episode, our host, Dr. Lynn Kohick, is talking with Dr. Dorothy Lee, who is joining us from Australia, where she is the Stewart Research Professor of New Testament at Trinity College at the University of Divinity near Melbourne. Dorothy is an Anglican priest and the author of numerous books, including Flesh and Glory, Symbol, Gender, and Theology in the Gospel of John, and a new book published this year titled The Ministry of Women in the New Testament, Reclaiming the Biblical Vision for Church Leadership. Thank you so much, Dorothy, for joining us on the Alabaster Jar. It's a pleasure, Lynn. It's lovely to be here. Thank you so much. And this is Saturday morning. I'm talking to the a voice from the future. Yes, you are indeed. We are ahead of you. <laughs> yes, yes. And I've had a chance a couple of times actually to visit Melbourne. What a gorgeous city. Have you, is that yes. your hometown or have you lived elsewhere? Um, I've lived elsewhere. I was actually born in Scotland. So I have joint British Australian citizenship and I've lived in both uh, countries. So. I've moved around, but Melbourne does feel most like home. Oh, that's that's really uh, that's really wonderful. I I have so enjoyed the hospitality there, and of course, my husband's a tennis player, and we even were able to uh, get to the city uh, one time when the uh, Australian Tennis Open was going. Oh, right. Oh, lovely. Yes. That's yes. Right. So that. That was really, really exciting. So, well, thank you so much for taking part of your Saturday morning and visiting with the listeners of Alabaster Jar. And I want to recommend so highly the book uh, that you just uh, produced with uh, Baker, Baker Academic, The Ministry of Women in the New Testament. And you talk about uh, how this book is, uh, it talks about the full participation of women in ministry. And one of the things I, I mean, this is a fabulous book, so I'm just gonna pick some of the things that I love because uh, we only have a half hour. <laughs> if I went with everything that I loved, we'd be here a long time. But I, um, I especially appreciated as you talked about the focus of your study, you talked about how um, important it is that our Christian identity is in relation to Christ and it's not primarily a question of rights or even individual rights. And I, I find that so important and perceptive. Can you unpack that a little bit for us? Why is theology and Christology so important? Uh, I think that uh, this um, thought came to me some years ago when I was asked to give a talk on uh, the right of women to ordination in the uh, Anglican Church. And I said that I couldn't talk on that because I didn't think anybody had the right to ordination or any form of leadership. So the rights language was, it's not that I'm against rights, human rights, uh, but it's just not the right framework. And, and I think our, our framework is much stronger if we locate it in, in the identity of Christ and what it means for us to be baptised into Christ and, and therefore given that new identity in him, as well as, of course, in creation. I don't want to downplay that either. But, uh, but that we are made in the image of God and then remade in the image of Christ. And that's where our identity comes from. And that's where our understanding of leadership has to come from. 
And, uh, and of course, Galatians 3.28 makes it quite plain that those who are dissimilar to Christ in, in a number of ways, um, gender, race, class, or time and place, you know, for that matter, we, we could extend it, are still um, remade in Christ in, in baptism and, and therefore can image Christ, um, can represent Christ in all sorts of ways, not just, of course, in leadership. I don't want to overplay that point about leadership because there are other ways of service. Um, but uh, but that, that, that women as well as men, uh, Gentiles as well as Jews, et cetera, et cetera, can represent Christ. And that's where our focus on women's leadership needs to um, spring from. And I think that's yes. what gives it life. Yes, yes, thank you. I think the um, I have heard often the the claim and using Galatians three twenty eight as you mentioned that somehow there it, we have these rights and uh, and I I just was just felt I, I was so um, convinced by your by the repetition of of your phrase that it, it really is our identity in Christ and that uh, Galatians three twenty eight challenges mm -hmm. patriarchy racism yep. colonialism. Yep. Yes. All of these. Absolutely. Yes. Yes, that's right. Yes. How do you how do you see this playing out uh, in churches? Maybe there's an example of a situation where um, where you felt that um, you, you just needed to uh, to distinguish. You're not going to talk about rights. You're, you're going to talk about identity in Christ. Um, yes, I think uh, I think. Uh, I think some of the ways that the discussions about ordination are going are towards rights. Um, and I, I don't, sorry, I, I should make clear, I'm not just talking about ordination um, because that's just one form of leadership. I and mean, my closest friend is a lay leader and she's always ready to remind me of that. So um, so we're talking about women's leadership more generally. Um, but I, I think that a, a lot of the talk is about rights. And uh, I think that those women who've given leadership theologically um, are actually offering something much more important to the church. And I have actually found that my own experience, that that really resonates with people much more. Um, we, we don't need to become political in the church in that narrow sense of political. Um, and, uh, and, and, and we need, I think, at the church in general, and maybe I'm talking about our Anglican church, we need to be a lot deeper theologically, you know, uh, uh, we need to actually find the basis of our of our, uh, our our notions of vocation, our notions of everything needs to be grounded in theology. And and so, really, I consider myself a New Testament theologian um, more than I do uh, myself as an exegete. Though I am an exegete and I love exegesis, but but it's the theology that interests me, and the theology that and the the, the diverse and yet unified theology of the New Testament that. That is is what is what is going to refresh us and take us into the future in in terms of the church's life. Sorry, that's a very general answer. No, but it it sums up so much. I think of the value uh, of the value of your work because it's not only that you look at historical women and what they're doing, but you're thinking theologically about them. You're thinking about how does that uh, shape our identity uh, in Christ. Um, you talk about, uh, and, and I love this method, this approach also, where you say, let's look 
first at what women did at this time, at the named women, and save the sort of complicated passages until the end. Yes. And, uh, and yeah, I, what led you to, to make that choice or that decision? Um, well, I was partly influenced on that by Beverly Gaventa, um, who has had a, an influence on me, as a number of women have, uh, including yourself, Lynn. Um, I think it was also, uh, also um, when I wrote my earlier book, Flesh and Glory, I, I found myself a little bit alienated from some forms of feminism. Now, I mean, of course, I want to support what feminists are doing, but, but I do find some versions of feminism quite negative. Um, and, uh, and looking only at the, 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 the nasty, it's like reading the church fathers and mothers and seeing only the, you know, Tertullian or Jerome yeah. or their, their negative statements about women. Well, yes, yeah, sure. But uh, I don't think, I think that's a very pessimistic way to go. It's kind of Eeyore in Winnie the Pooh, you know. It's the gloomy way to go. And, and actually there's so much, such riches in the New Testament and in the Christian tradition that I, I want to go for, for them, with them first. So let's start with the positive instead of always assuming that the worst, the negative. Now, I realise that some forms of feminism are coming from women who um, are banned from leadership in their church. And so that's always hanging over them. So that, that of course, influences them. And that's not true, at least in my church, where I am in, in, uh, in, in Victoria, in Melbourne. But uh, I think we need to start with the grace of the gospel. That, that's where theology needs to begin. And, and what that then says about, about who we are in terms of Christian anthropology. So, and I think we end up in a rather different place. Yes, we've still got to deal with difficult passages. But, but we, I mean, when you look at Romans 16, it is extraordinary. When you think of a patriarchal world, and the women there who've been, and people still arguing about when Junior is a, a man or a woman, you know, ridiculous. Or Phoebe, you know, Phoebe who takes the epistle to Rome, um, you know, one of the greatest writings of the New Testament and probably explained it to them as well. You know, I like to think she did anyway. Um, and um, so I, I want to start with with what's there, what's, what's given, what God has given us through, rather than through, beginning with the negative and, and doing a... I have trouble, to be honest, with the whole notion of a hermeneutic of suspicion. Um, I, think, I think it has its place. But I think theologically, if there's any suspicion going, it's probably on God's side with that. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and coming to the scripture, to the sacred text, with a, a notion of that it's somehow out to get me, um, is is just it's it's not I think a valid, authentic or helpful hermeneutic, and oh, that's and where so I you... disagree with the greatest of respect with with some some of my feminist sisters. Sure, sure, yes, no, and I, I think the um, looking at what women were were actually doing right that the on the ground how they were acting, like you say, Phoebe taking the letter of Romans to the Romans, reading it, interpreting it for them, yes. Junia and her husband or brother Andronicus, um, known, uh, well-known among the apostles. Uh, yes. The, you know, she, 
the the basic reading of it is that she was numbered among uh, among the apostles. But then you stop and you think, but what does that mean? She's in prison. <laughs> she suffered. You know, and when you look at yeah. right, you know, when you look at how does Paul describe his own apostolic ministry? Wow. I mean, there's it's just it's a lot of suffering. There's great joy. But he talks about having yes. this treasure in um, jars of clay that he is kind of yes. wasting away daily, even as he's also being built up in Christ. So I think we, we fuss a lot about, oh, should a woman really be an apostle? Can that really happen? As though apostle is like someone who sits in the C-suite and gets a special you know, parking spot uh, yeah. <laughs> in the company instead of sitting in a jail and potentially yes, martyred. Right. So, yes. yeah, and, and that's what I appreciate about your work is, as you talk about the ministry of women in the New Testament, it's bathed in Christology, the, uh, the goal of which is to become more like our Savior, who, uh, yes. you know, suffered and thus we do. Um, yes. Let's move to another one of these women that you talk about um, from the Gospel of John, Mary, Jesus's mother. Um, Evangelicals uh, probably don't know enough or think enough about uh, Mary, Jesus's mother. Um, yeah, what did you, what should we know about her? And especially talk a little bit about that uh, wedding at Cana. Mm. Well, I think she she has an important place in both Luke and John. Um, and uh, as, as a disciple and primarily as a type disciple, and I think the problem with some Protestants is that They've overreacted from what they've seen as the abuses of Mary, where Mary has in many ways taken over the role of the Holy Spirit in, in some forms of Catholic theology, um, which is, of course, seriously problematical in, uh, for our Trinitarian theology. Um, and uh, so uh, we need to reclaim her as, as a disciple. Um, and as the one who, who's the, you know, as the early church described her, Council of Ephesus describes her as, as the, the God-bearer probably very poorly translated as mother of God, but God bearer is, is I think, the yeah. best. The one who bears God in her body and, and not only her body, but in her faith. So uh, those two incidents at the beginning of Luke and the beginning of John, where the Annunciation in, in Luke, um, which is such a beautiful story of, of this young woman and, you know, probably by our standards, a child, um, who has such faith and who says to um, let be to me according to your word. And then you look at, at, at her presence at Cana of Galilee. Now, we don't have the story, first story, of course, in John's gospel. We have instead the prologue. Um, but, but the mother of Jesus is brought in very early and, and it's her words to the servants, do whatever he tells you. So, so these two statements, let it be to me according to your word and do whatever he tells you seem to me to be emblematic of the light of faith. And, and so she, um, I, I think she is actually the first disciple in, in the Gospel of Luke. Um, not so, of course, in John, because you've already got the gathering of a group of disciples, but, but at least there, there's a role that she plays along with others um, as models of faith. Not perfect, um, Mark makes it clear that she does struggle. Um, to understand, she, I, I don't accept, uh, I have many Catholic friends, I don't accept the view of the Immaculate Conception. Um, I think, you know, she says in Luke, uh, my, my soul rejoices in God, my Saviour, 
so she does need to be saved along with the rest of us. Um, but but she she's she's plays a really important role as a, as a woman of faith and and as a woman who bears God in her body. And I think and let me just about the body. It's so wonderful there. Absolutely. And let me just pause here in case um, you mentioned the Immaculate Conception. And just to make sure with our listeners, that refers to Mary's own conception, yes. not yes. not the virgin birth, not Jesus's, not, no. not the no, incarnation. Not conception. Yeah. Yep. But the, yes. just to make sure that <laughs> we yes. didn't uh, mis inadvertently uh, confuse any listener there. Yeah. Yeah. And you're, I had not ever connected, may it be to me, as you have said, and then her strong faith. Uh, do what he says in, in Cana. That um, mm. that that is it. It it demonstrates a consistency, a perspective throughout her mm. life, doesn't it? Because this would be it a, does, you know, indeed. you know, certainly decades later. The, the two incidences are decades apart. Yeah. Yes, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Yes. Um, and then. Uh, I think maybe one of the reasons that I sometimes shy away from Mary uh, is that she's a virgin mother, which really yes. isn't something I can aspire to. <laughs> I've been a virgin and I've been a mother, but not at the same time. <laughs> not at the time. same time. <laughs> yeah, sequential, yes. not, not yes. uh, synchronous. Yes. Yeah. I think I think that's that's tricky because again, I'm giving you my own personal views, but I don't believe that Mary is ever virgin. Um, and I think that those, the, the siblings, and I think we should translate it incidentally as brothers and sisters, um, unless we're, we're told otherwise, um, I think Jesus has clearly has brothers and sisters, and I think they are, you know, uh, children of Mary. So, I, so that actually helps. I mean, she's a virgin mother to Jesus, but she's not a virgin mother to her other children. She doesn't remain a virgin, and I think that's a really mistaken view that the early church um, went with. I understand why they did, but I think it was uh, unfortunate for women. I think it distanced Mary from us. Um, it made and, her uh, right, yeah. Oh, it made, made her kind of an impossible, most. yeah, absolutely, impossible yeah, model. Absolutely, yeah. One of the, but, but uh, I think the, the virginity mm -hmm. of Mary. Um, in the, the, at the conception, not at the birth, but at the conception of Jesus, I think it's really quite important theologically. And I know a lot of perhaps somewhat more liberal Christians uh, struggle with it. But but I think it's, from a, a feminist point of view, I think it's saying something very, very powerful about Jesus. Well, and you talk about that and you talk about not only what it says about Jesus, but also the role of Mary, a woman, in um in Jesus in you know in the in the um I don't even know how to say this in the formation if you will of Jesus's humanity absolutely uh, and that's more than just uh bearing him in a body it's also teaching him and doing all the things that that the mother did um I mean she yeah she she forms his his humanity is entirely dependent on her, on a woman. And that, I think, the implications of that go beyond perhaps even what Matthew and Luke might have thought, although I'd be happy to point this out to them in heaven. Um, and I suspect they'd, be a rejo they'd rejoice in it, but um, especially from a heavenly perspective. But, uh, but 
you know, it is saying that the, the humanity of Jesus is actually, un, it, it's both in continuity with us and different from us. Now, people say the virginal conception shows that Jesus is not genuinely human. Well, we, we, when we say that Jesus is fully human and fully divine, we, we actually already are saying a qualification about his humanity. Um, and, and we believe that he's, it's a whole humanity. There's a wholeness to his humanity. Um, uh, so there is something fundamentally, not perhaps fundamentally, but there is both a continuity with our humanity and a discontinuity because he recreates our humanity. Um, and, uh, but it's also a humanity that's dependent entirely on women. And, and I actually think, I think, sometimes I think Matthew 1, the opening verses of that section of Matthew is a bit of a joke because you've got all that, you know, male sexual activity going on through the generations is quite exhausting actually to read. And then all of a sudden the Holy Spirit says, no, not doing it that way. And and she's, and she's, I mean, it's just, it's fabulous. It's, it's just so radical. Do we realise how radical it is that the Holy Spirit bypasses all that and goes entirely through through a woman and Jesus' humanity is entirely dependent on a woman? And here I find myself in disagreement with a commentator whom I enjoy very much, Andrew Lincoln. He's a lovely man and a, a lovely commentator, but his book on the virginal conception, I just found myself you know, uh, in, in entire disagreement and hopefully courteous disagreement with on that because uh, he, he just argues it's not important. And I mean, he's arguing for the incarnation. But if if God can become human, which is the greater miracle, then the, the fact that God can do it through a virgin is actually pretty small, you know, in comparison. I don't well, see how we are. How... Yeah. And I love how you you've written this in your in your book that ha talking about Mary's virginity and Jesus's conception, it underscores the point that female humanity alone with the initiating and creative work of God, but without male aid, has generated the humanity of the second person of the Trinity. And yeah. like you say, yeah. just even saying that it it it, can, it should blow our minds. Oh, it's absolutely mind blowing. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Um, but then people will say, okay, well, maybe, you know, we have, uh, we have the virgin birth, but when we talk about women in full participation in ministry, including in leadership roles, Jesus only chose men as his apostles. So men should be the final leaders in the church. You talk about what does it mean that Jesus chose men as the 12 apostles? Can you unpack that a little bit for us? Yeah. Um, well, it's it's a tradition that's known in the in the fourth gospel, but the gospel of John, but, you know, John doesn't make anything of it. So it's not, it seems to be it's most important to um, Luke, uh, Luke Acts, uh, where the 12 need to be reconstituted before Pentecost can happen. Um, so the, the, the 12 provide an official, in a patriarchal world, an official bridge between Jesus as he was and the risen Christ, present with the community who sends the spirit. Um, but, but they are always present with the holy women. So in Luke 8, um, we've got the 12 and then we've got that group of women. And when we come to Pentecost and we like depicting Pentecost with the 12, 
But there's also the holy women present too, as well as some relatives of Jesus, including, I assume, James of Jerusalem. But but always the 12 are with the holy women. So there, while there is an inner group of males, um, which can in, in Mark and particularly Mark and Matthew just be the inner group of three, there's also an inner group of women. Now, the New Testament doesn't tell us the story of their calling or their appointment, but, um, but they are called. Um, and Luke tells us it's through their experience of healing um, that they and and of the liberation that that the gospel brings that they come to faith in Christ. Uh, they bankroll the whole Jesus movement. It would be pos impossible without them. And and but the, not only that, they minister. And it may be that they minister to the twelve. I prefer the reading. Maybe personal bias that they minister to Jesus. Um, but but in and in actual fact, when it comes to the cross, where are the twelve? You know, you, you can't see them for dance. It's the holy women um, who are the ones who are there at a distance or at the foot of the cross, probably a bit of both historically. Um, so I think we, we read, I mean, we forget Paul. We forget Paul. Paul insisted he was an apostle and he's not one of the 12. So we already have a wider understanding of apostle, probably in the earlier days, which includes junior and, and by implication, Mary Magdalene in John 20, the Apostle of the Apostles, as the early church called her. So um, I think we forget. We're blind to women, the presence of women, and we're all too um, ready to see the males. And we well, and as you, that's right. And as you point out, these are Jewish men. There's not a Gentile among them. And, no, and so this... The, that's right. And so the symbolic importance of 12 for the 12 tribes yes. um, and the, as you pointed out, connecting uh, Jesus's uh, ministry to the birth of the church um, and having the needing to have 12 uh, present there. Um, the idea that um, the people of God, the new people of God led by the Messiah, having the 12 represented. I mean, there's evangelicals aren't always real big on symbolism, but there's so much of it there with those yes. uh, with those apostles. And it's not their maleness. You go on to talk a little bit more about the danger of emphasizing Jesus's maleness when even talking about his salvific uh, efforts. You know, if we emphasize his maleness so much, can he save women? Yeah, that's right. And, and of course, that question was posed by early feminists. Can a male saviour save women? Um, I think we need to uh, bear in mind that, you know, the Nicene Creed says he became truly human. And we Anglicans, when we say the creed, we say that version, he became truly human because it's anthropidzain um, is the verb. And and there's a, a saying of the early church, you probably know better than I do where it comes from, but uh, I've never been able to locate its source. That is that what he did not take up, he did not redeem. So he right. takes up full humanity uh, into himself uh, and uh, female-generated humanity into himself and uh, and therefore, et cetera, et cetera, Galatians 3.28. Um, and, and that's absolutely biblical, that what he did not take up, he did not redeem. So 
if we can't lead, we can't be baptised. I just, I think perhaps that's a rather extreme way of putting it, but baptism itself gives us access, calling, vocation to ministry in whatever way God chooses to call us. And there's no restriction on women, just as there's no restriction on Gentiles. Yes, thank you. We're coming to the bottom of our uh, half hour, but I didn't want to... uh, to leave our conversation without giving you an opportunity to talk a little bit about the story in John 12, Mary and her alabaster jar. Since we uh, we here uh, at the podcast call ourselves the alabaster jar, we we love to lovely uh, name to lovely hear name. about that. Yes, and uh, in your book, I was especially moved by uh the the symbolism of her actions that you point out so yeah please talk a little bit about that that story um i think it's a very rich story and i see i see it very closely connected of course as it is to the raising of lazarus Uh, indeed i I think the story is not completed till we get to john 12 um the the, uh, threat to lazarus's life and so on so it's integral in some way to the whole Lazarus story. And John indicates that by describing Mary as the one who anointed Jesus right at the beginning of chapter 11. So that we're already, uh, I mean, it's a reminder to his community of a story they doubtless know. But it also tells us as readers, the story won't be finished until Mary has anointed Jesus. Um, and and I think it's an immensely important act. I mean, it's really important that we distinguish it from Luke's wonderful story in Luke 7 about the sinful woman and and that we distinguish it uh, at least in the way that John tells it from the story in in um, Mark uh, 12 and um, sorry Mark 14 and um, the story of the anointing of Jesus head so I I think to sort of uh, get rid of all those strands um, and uh, and and focus on John's account and what John is trying to do and say in telling this wonderful story. I think it's both a thanksgiving, obviously thanksgiving for the uh, um, the, the, the raising of Lazarus um, and Martha also is there serving. But I think it's much more than that because, um, I mean, there's a, there's a thing about odours going on, you know, there's this odour that pervades the house and it contrasts with the stench of death at the tomb. Um, when Lazarus says, Lord, it stinks, you can't open the tomb. Um, so she's she's a woman of faith, but she's not come to full faith yet. Um, and here we see Mary, who falls at Jesus' feet in John 11. Um, and Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. In, in, in just an outpouring of grief, now we find her in an outpouring of love and thanksgiving. But it also seems to me that it's costly. It's immensely costly. And John emphasizes the cost. But because Jesus has just done a very costly act in coming to uh, to Judea, uh, where, in fact, the authorities are trying to st- uh, tried to stone him, where he's in danger of his life. And John makes sure that we understand that the, the narrative underlying this whole Lazarus story is, in fact, the story of Jesus and his death and his resurrection. Um, and um, and so the, the costly act that he does in raising Lazarus, which will cost him his life, um, it leads directly to the plot and Caiaphas at the end of towards the end of John 11, um, is mirrored by the costly act of of, uh, of Mary in in uh, pouring all this this uh, perfumed oil onto Jesus' feet, 
So, um, so it seems to me that we have an example there of the mutuality of discipleship. Um, that 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 Jesus uh, Jesus gift to us of life, the salvation is costly. We can of course never repay it, but we are called to costly a costly love in return, um, in the mutuality of 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 discipleship of of relationship with Christ, and and she embodies that, uh, and uh, I think she also foreshadows the foot washing. Jesus, who's had his who washes the disciples' feet, has had his feet in inverted commas washed. Um, by Mary. So again, so she acts there as an example of the true disciple as opposed to Judas, who is the example of the false disciple. So so I think it, it's symbolism is very, it's very rich, very theological about what she does there. And it's a wonderful uh, example that we can take in our own discipleship. I mean, we're, oh, we might not have yes. all that costly yeah. ointment, uh, but we can be aware of what the Lord is doing around us and then in gratitude an, anoint, uh, bless uh, those, those that he puts in our path. Yeah, and, and I would connect it too to the story of Peter in John 21. Because Peter also is called to give his all to Christ in in the end, his life, and and it, and it's to come out of love, just like it does with Mary. It's to arise from love for Christ. So our love for Christ, the the, the deeper, the more we love Christ, the more of ourselves we're able to give over to Him, um, in 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 our own spiritual journey with Him and in our service of others. Oh, that's beautiful. Dorothy, thank you so much. This, this book is such a treasure. The Ministry of Women in the New Testament. Uh, I highly recommend it to our listeners. As you've heard, just some examples of the rich reflection, theological reflection on women in the, in the Bible. But you, for me, I also just gained a deeper appreciation of who our Lord Jesus is. And I so yes. appreciate that. And that's all that matters in the end, isn't it? Dorothy, when when uh, we got on the call about a half hour ago or so, I have to tell our listeners, your kitties, you have two cats and they are... Tonkanese. And, and they were uh, running around and uh, jumping on your books. And while I have found this conversation over the last half hour incredibly stimulating, I look behind you and the cats are asleep. I don't know if <laughs> if our conversation just put them out or not. I don't know. But I certainly had a great time in talking with you. And thank you so much for taking uh, your Saturday morning to spend some time talking, talking with us and talking to the listeners of the Alabaster Jar podcast. I so appreciate it. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Lynn. It's really lovely to talk to you too. I'd love to meet you one day. Yes, uh, me too. I'll, I'll try and get myself over to Melbourne. I love the city. Please do. Please do. That would be lovely. You've been listening to another episode of the Alabaster Jar, a weekly conversation where we take on current issues impacting women at the intersection of faith, theology, and ministry. If you enjoyed this week's conversation with Dr. Dorothy Lee, we encourage you to go check out her most recent book from Baker Academic titled The Ministry of Women in the New Testament. Please join us back here again next week for another episode.